Hello and welcome to the Has Media Podcast. I'm your host, Harry O'Brien. In this episode, I sat down with Richard Boyd Barrett. Richard Boyd Barrett is a TD from Dunleary. He is a very cool guy. He is, man, when I was organizing this interview, there was no hassle with him. It was like, yeah, all right, when do you want it? Give me a date and a time and I'll be there. So we sat down with him and again, like there was, there was no bullshit with him. He was, his Wi-Fi could have been a bit better, but sure, look, we won't worry about that. Um, a bit about Richard Boy Barrett. He went to college in UCD and we talked about that and got a master's in English literature. I think his undergrad was psychology, philosophy and English. And then his master's was in English literature. And yeah, and then he was working odd jobs around the country. He became an activist. Um, for the social wor- socialist workers party, and ran for them actually in the Dáil in two thousand two. Wasn't elected. Two thousand four in the local elections as a councillor, didn't get in. Ran again for the thirtieth Dáil in two thousand and seven as a TD. Wasn't elected. But each election he ran in, like first election was nine hundred votes, second election was fifteen hundred votes, third election he got five thousand votes, and then in the two thousand nine local elections he got in as a councillor. He took the first seat on the first count, so he got the most votes out of everyone, out of anybody that ran in that election. And he's been elected every year since, and he's got more and more votes every time. So he's quite a popular guy. And the name Richard Boy Barrett might be familiar to you. You might have heard of it somewhere. Uh, he's quite popular. He's on the radio and all that. Yeah, very interesting conversation. So without further ado, we'll just get into it. So thanks for sitting down with me today, Richard. I'd like to start off asking you about your, you have a bit of a passion for forests. You've done a lot of work to protect them. And I think back in 2013, there was the government were going to sell off like, it was like 600 million euro worth of uh, publicly owned forests. And you led a campaign and stopped that. Like, where did this passion for forests come from? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, that's a bit, there's a place near where I live called Kleine Hill. Uh, and I used to hang around there when I was younger and it's a kind of forested hill, public park near me. I always loved that. Uh, and I always used to go, go with mates camping down to Ratrum uh, in the forest by the river down there, which is near where we had that big demonstration many years later over the sell-off of uh, Quilcher. But we used to camp down in the woods there as uh, teenagers. Um, so I just always liked the forest. I was big into Lord of the Rings as well, you know, and the elves okay. and yeah, all yeah, that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I always had a love of forests. And, yeah, when I discovered that as part of the Troika austerity package for Ireland, that the government had agreed to sell off the entire harvesting rights of the public forest company, Quilcher, um, which is just, you know, the scale of it was staggering to me. 7% of the landmass of the entire country the harvesting rights for all of the trees on 7% of the of the of full landmass of Ireland was going to be sold, most likely to banks. Um, I was just gobsmacked and that they had agreed to this. I mean, that was actually part of the package as well as people may not remember all those terrible austerity things, but there was a whole series of privatizations and, you know, increases in pension age and uh, water charges and property taxes. And as part of that package, it was agreed to sell off the forests. And in fact, it's one of the few austerity measures imposed by the Troika, as they were called, the IMF and the EU Commission, that was stopped. Um, and it was stopped by people power. Uh, it was um, 
the Woodland League I worked alongside to kind of get the protest going, uh, who were really a small outfit, but really passionate about the trees as well. A guy called Andrew St. Ledger headed them up. And um, we kind of decided we have to do something. Nobody was even talking about it at the time. Nobody seemed aware of it. And uh, we tried to ring the alarm bells. And then we got, we enlisted musicians and artists and people from across the political spectrum who were opposed to the austerity package. Um, and we organized this fantastic demonstration down in um, in Ratrum, where I used to camp, just down the road from uh, the, the place where I used to camp in, uh, in what was the birthplace of Charles Stewart Parnell. Um, and it was, the, it was the place where the sort of the reforestation of Ireland really began. Uh, because the British had cut down all the trees, so it, uh, it had huge historic resonance to have it down there. And we didn't, we didn't know would anybody turn up. I was terrified that morning. I woke up, it was raining, and I thought, "We're having a demonstration down in the woods in Wicklow. Like, is anybody seriously going to come to this?" <laughs> uh, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people turned up, um, and it just, it, it really caused shockwaves then. And literally within about ten days, the government did a flip and abandoned the plan to sell them off. So it's my, pr- to be honest, it's my proudest moment of all the things I've ever done. And it wasn't just me, obviously it was the people and it was the Woodland League and it was, yeah. you know, everybody turned up and all the artists and singers. It was a brilliant, brilliant grassroots kind of uh, mobilization and we saved the public forest estate. So, yeah. yeah. And you've been involved with a lot of them, like it was a similar ones against uh, water, water charges, uh, which were stopped and a bunch of other things. And we won't even get into it. Yeah. And there, also we won't even get into the bloody the fire sales that the Troika were running in Ireland and they've done it in other countries after the recession. I would like to talk about, I was listening to a podcast you did and you said you cook a lot of Ethiopian food. Is that right? <laughs> well, I get quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a friend, I have a friend from Ghana. Um, he's my best friend really, or one of my best friends. Um, and he's a socialist like myself. I met him many years ago at a, uh, a big left-wing conference. I go to fairly regularly in London um, and we became fast fast pals so he kind of introduced me to african cuisine first of all ghanaian cuisine which is also lovely uh things like fufu which is like smashed up sweet potatoes uh into a kind of mush <laughs> that you eat with like spicy stews and fish and beans uh so i kind of got into that but then he, he said the best african food is ethiopian and he used to take me to places in london uh that did ethiopian food and uh it's amazing. Like it's kind of, it's, it's communal eating because, uh, they put a big sort of pancake, flat pancake made out of uh teff flour. It's a grass that's it turned into a flour and then it becomes a sourdough pancake. And then they put loads of different dishes on it, uh, like ch- chicken stews and, uh, lamb stews and veg vegetable sauces and salads and, uh, a cottage cheese is a big thing they always include in it. Um, so they, they put like seven or eight things on this sourdough and then everybody mills in and uses the sourdough pancake and rolls of the same stuff that are put around the side to pick it with their hands. Uh, and it's just delicious. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I fell in love with Ethiopian food and then I started trying to cook some of it myself. Um, and I would say I'm a dab hand at Doro Wat now, <laughs> which is their kind of signature chicken dish. It's a spicy chicken stew and it's lovely. Takes a while to make, but it's delicious. Yeah, I'd say it does. Yeah, that doesn't sound quick. Um, definitely not something I'd be making here. In my, yeah. It wouldn't be made in my student house. Um, and like, where'd you get the ingredients for it? Like all this Ethiopian stuff. 
Uh, there's quite a few good shops now in town. Um, I was I go to London regularly, so I used to buy the Berber spice, which is the really magic sort of ingredient. It's a it's a very particular mixture of spices, and you can't actually. Or I, I I've never found it here in Ireland, so I used to go and buy it in London and bring back loads of it. But then I discovered what the the component ingredients of it were, and you can get them there. So now I just make it myself. I make the Berber spice myself. It's a mixture of about fifteen different spices, um, and you mix them up. And then the rest, the rest are, you know, are ingredients you can get here. It's more the combination that's unusual, you know. So it's lots of onions, lots of garlic, lots of ginger, the spice, obviously, uh, butter, um, chicken and stock and stuff like that. So uh, the injure, uh, the, the flat pancake thing is hard. I can't make that because that takes days. So I have to either substitute rice for that or else now there is one Ethiopian place in Dublin where you can get it uh, that's sort of periodically open. So uh, when they're uh, operating, I try and I buy some off them. And where are they? Well, they were up in Francis Street during the summer. They're called Gersha. So they were in, you know, the Ivy Markets has been taken over again by the Guinnesses to reopen as a market. It was just sitting oh, yeah. there for 20 years. It's a good, good move. They set up loads of food stalls and Gersha, the Ethiopian place, moved in there for the summer. But now they're gone. And I think they're back in Fibsborough. But they, clo- they closed for COVID, because, uh, you know, but they had a place in Fibsborough that was operating just at the weekends. So I think they're probably going back up to Fibsborough. I certainly hope so, because uh, there's a big gap in the market. I mean, Gersha, when they were open in Fibsborough, they were booked ahead for like about two months. Uh, you know, so people who know Ethiopian food know it's good. And uh, really, there should be a kind of round-the-clock restaurant. In fact, a few. So, so, so if you know any Ethiopians, there's a business opportunity for you. <laughs> set up a, set up an Ethiopian restaurant, and uh, you're guaranteed success. If you've yeah, a good you chef, know, obviously. Yeah, no, I do not need <laughs> any more... Uh probably business ideas i have about a thousand so i'm trying <laughs> to focus on the ones i have already um yeah. you know you actually you went to primary school the same school as one of my housemates here jack and yeah. then uh, you both went to michael's as well um both your parents sent you to michael's what kind yeah. of student were you like because i just get the impression since you're an opposition tt you're a bit of a messer uh yeah well i was kind of a bit of both you know i was a bit of both uh like i did i did work uh and I liked some subjects in school, um, and I liked doing sport in school. Like in Johnstown, we played GAA and soccer. Played in Croke Park when I was twelve. It was great. Uh, um, so you know where I where there was good teachers, I I I, I didn't mess. I worked and I enjoyed school. Uh, but if you had a bad teacher, then you you'd I yeah I'd be the type who'd stand up, try and stand up to a, a teacher who was a bully, for example. And we had one or two of those. Um, uh yeah so it was a mixture of both you know uh i used to go on the hop a fair bit when i was in michael's <laughs> uh quite a lot actually we used to we used to there was a bus called the 86 which uh used to go really circuitous route um up the mountains i don't know if in fact it's gone now the 86 but it started from the graduate pub which is relatively near where i lived and uh, relatively near that primary school johnstown where your, me and your friend once went but it then went all the way up the hills and round and the most circuitous route possible into Dublin city centre. So it took for ages. So it was, and no, you'd never meet anybody you knew on it. So it was a great bus to go on the hop. Um, and uh, that, uh, I certainly remember at one period, we were going through our Rubik's Cube phase. <laughs> we were trying to get really fast on the Rubik's Cube. And we used to go in, well, we got quite good at it. Uh, and we used to go into um, the Irish Life Centre. You know, the Irish Life Centre there, the bus used to drop us behind Liberty Hall. No, uh, it has know. kind of plaza uh, near Tower Street Station. 
Okay, Tara Street. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, Irish Life Building. There was a plaza there. And we used to oh st- yeah, used to, in town. Yeah, we used to sit in there doing the Rubik's Cube and like uh, doing it really fast. Like we could do it pretty quick, you know. And uh, so people would gather around and sometimes throw you a few bob for if you were good at doing the Rubik's Cube. Uh, so yeah, if going on the hop is being a bit rebellious, I suppose it was a bit. But um, and yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to really. I let other people to describe what I was like at school. There we go. Um, was that the kind of was that the start of your anti-establishment thoughts? Uh, I think I, I, I well, no, I think music was really the the thing, punk music. So at the age of about twelve, I got into punk, and um, that had a big political edge to it. You know, that was very much kind of anti-establishment musical movement. It wasn't just a musical movement; it was a it was a culture movement. It was a fashion movement. It was a youth movement. You know. And it had a, a political edge, significant political edge to it. Um, you know, there was kind of, you know, there was housing movements attached to the punk movement, squatting, squatting empty houses. There was rock against racism, which is a big anti-racist movement against the extreme far right, particularly in Britain, but it had echoes here. There was anti-nuclear was a big part of a lot of the punk movements. And then there was kind of, there was a kind of split in the punk movement between left and right over, you know, with, uh, I think the vast majority of punks being into ska and reggae and being anti-racist. And then you had a kind of far right element uh, who we used to despise, you know, and uh, there used to be quite a, quite a political sort of clash over the issue of race, basically, and being opposed to racism. Um, so we used to call ourselves ja punks. <laughs> uh, so we were into ska and two-tone and reggae and all that kind of stuff as well as the punk thing so there, so there's a very definite political dimension to it and I think that uh, did play a part in me becoming politicised even the minor strike like I went to gigs that were raising funds for the for the minor strike in 84 and 85 you know there was huge support for the mi- British miners when they went to strike in England over here incredible support and uh, we went to gigs to support the miners in their battle against Thatcher um, so all those things definitely politicised me, uh, and I, yeah, propelled me on the road towards an interest in politics, I suppose. Um, yeah, and then your punk phase, did that carry on through college? Yeah, I mean, once a punk, always a punk. In fact, I like to think when I got into the doll, it was like punk getting into the doll. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, you, you didn't necessarily, sometimes it wasn't practical to be wearing all the gear, if you know what I mean. Like, when I was young... Spike in your hair looked t- took forever, you know. <laughs> Did you have that Statue of Liberty uh, hair? So, yeah, yeah. Oh, Statue of Liberty hair, yeah, major. That took forever. Took about half an hour to dry yeah, them out. Um, yeah, and uh, we used to do it with soap. Then they didn't have the gels you they have now, so we had to do it with soap. So if it rained, you were in serious trouble. Uh, but uh, yeah, so. But yeah, like, so there was times when I went traveling and stuff, you know, I, I just didn't have time to be putting on all the gear, if you know what I mean. But uh, yeah, I think you always carry the attitude of punk, which is a kind of general uh, unwillingness to submit to uh, arbitrary authority, you know. Um, I think that's an attitude that is, you know, is the punk attitude. And uh, I think you always take that attitude with you. It's a formative influence, as they say. Is that you did... Um psychology philosophy and english in college is that kind of the punk element or their your punk fear whatever does that kind of lead you through that yeah well well we were always talking ideas so philosophy was um yeah you know we were always debating about the world 
when we were out drinking flagons of cider, <laughs> uh, you were always thinking about the world. And punk was like, it was questioning everything, do you know? It was questioning all received wisdoms and conventions and authorities. Um, so, yeah, I was interested in, in ideas and psychology. Yeah, I was fascinated with the human mind, you know, still am. And uh, English, yeah, it's the same kind of thing, isn't it? It's all in the same ballpark, you know, literature is about how people thought and you know, different periods of time and the issues they were confronting and how they dealt with them. Um, so there was, it was a kind of, yeah, it was often seeing the connections between these different things that I was interested in as well. You know, the connection between psychology and philosophy and politics and culture and something that started to develop, I think, in, in academia a lot more. It was less so when I came in, there, were, there, was, there was quite sharp demarcation lines between different disciplines in the arts and humanities. And I think, over recent years, that's begun to break down. You have a lot more cultural studies courses and stuff that kind of begin to see see the connections between the human mind and politics and culture um, and philosophy. So, yeah, I was interested in the big picture, I suppose, and I have a little picture related to the big picture. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, when you were in college, did you move out? Like, were you in a house? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I think, well, certainly when I began, I was living at home. But then after first year, I went away. I took a year out um to go with mates of mine who weren't college goers uh you know there were people who'd left school some of them after their junior cert some of them after leaving cert hadn't come from you know more working class backgrounds and like i'm very conscious of that class division like the good thing about punk was people from more middle class backgrounds and people from working class backgrounds came together in dunleary um which is a good thing do you know because it's quite a, a place of contrast in terms of class uh inequality really done eerie and uh, the good thing about punk is it brought you together and some of my best mates were people who weren't college goers and i tended to hang around more with them than with my sort of college college mates um and they were going to look for work because there was very little work in ireland at the time there's a lot of unemployment late 80s they went to look for work on the building sites in england and i decided to go with them and take a year out so we were working on building sites in london and we were squatting in a place called peckham southeast london and uh, we worked there for, I don't know, five, six months, made a few bob, not very much because we spent most of it, you know, entertaining ourselves. But uh, we decided to go somewhere hot and um, we ended up in Palestine. Uh, so that was after my first year in college. Um, and I spent, I spent a year in Palestine with them, traveled to Egypt as well while we were there. And uh, I, that really, whatever political thoughts I had before then, that's what set me on the road to politics. So then I came back the next year uh and start to get involved in politics in college which i hadn't been before um i did my second and third year uh in college then i went away again to spain i was living in spain for a year as well and what were then you doing in palestine again. well we were that was crazy right we were, talk about na naivety you know uh we decided we were fed up with london it was getting cold it was kind of november or something late october uh and the building sites were getting cold. <laughs> Our squat was getting cold. And uh, so we decided to go, we had to go somewhere hot. Um, first thought we had was Morocco, right? And I remember us ringing the, the Moroccan embassy and we said, listen, we're four Irish lads. So if we're thinking of going to Morocco to work, would we get a job? And they just laughed at us, <laughs> you know? And then, uh, so that wasn't a start, it wasn't a runner. And then one of, one of the fellas mentioned going to Israel. You know, why do we try and go to Israel? Apparently, you could just get on these kibbutzes and it was like utopia. Uh, you didn't have to do much work and you were in the sun and it was just bliss. So we got one-way tickets to Tel Aviv. Um, and when we arrived, they wouldn't let us on the kibbutz. They didn't like the look of us, thought we were messers. Uh, 
and then we were stuck because we hadn't got return tickets and we spent all our money in the first two nights. And, uh, so then we ended up having to go down to the desert, down to the very, very south on the Jordanian border to work in these really like slave farms. That's how I could call them, where we were picking tomatoes and melons in the desert, in the Dead Sea, which is like the second hottest place on earth. <laughs> it was slave labor. Um, but we were working there. But the good thing about it was we met Palestinians who were coming as day laborers from refugee camps in Hebron. And literally about three weeks after we arrived, the first Palestinian uprising started, the Intifada. So we were there as it began, and we were talking to young people who were actually from one of the epicenters of it, which was Hebron, the refugee camps in Hebron. And they were giving us day-by-day accounts of what was happening, the clashes with the Israeli Defense Forces, the pitched battles, uh, the demonstrations, the strikes, and, and the universities, and all this kind of stuff. So then a, a few weeks later, it was Christmas, and we got a few days off from the farm we were working, and they s- sneaked us into the West Bank, into the refugee camp where they lived. Uh, to like witness what was going on and it was really shocking you know to see the squalor the people were living in to see, to learn their story about how they'd been expelled from what is now Israel in 1948 by force by essentially Israeli terror gangs how they'd lived in refugee camps ever since how there no future and how they weren't willing to put up with it and how they were then sort of standing up to the Israeli armed forces and uh, that was very inspiring and um, took us another best part of a year to get out of the place just to earn the money to get home uh, but when I came home, that absolutely determined me to get active politically. And um, like, what happened there to those uh, Palestinians was obviously awful. Like, and do the Israelis like? Because I don't, I'm not very informed on the Israel-Palestine thing. Do the Israelis like not know that this is happening, or why do they keep voting in people like you know parties like Benjamin Netanyahu? Well, his party, why do they keep getting voted in by the Israelis? You see, I think, and this is this is the thing, and it's a difficult thing to kind of get across and. You know, it maybe jars with people a little bit, but Israel is not a normal state. That's a, That would be a reasonable question to ask of most states. But Israel is not a normal state because it's a state that was constructed in 1948 and was built on the back of the ethnic cleansing of the entire native population. So, you know, a million Palestinians over in one year were driven by terror gangs from their homes in what is now called Israel, but was previously historic Palestine. Uh, Now, in Palestine, Jews and Arabs had lived together for thousands of years, as they had across the Middle East. But the setting up of the Israeli state was a project to end that integrated living and to create a specifically Jewish state at the expense of the Palestinians. So it was akin to the sort of, the sort of, you know, incremental genocidal expulsion of the Native American population in the United States. It's in that kind of territory, do you know? where an entire people are displaced and, you know, wiped out for, for, you know, largely wiped out in the case of the Native American population. That is, in my opinion, and I witnessed it firsthand, that is the nature of the Israeli state project. Um, And I think it's, it's a tragedy because the Jewish people themselves suffered from something worse than that, but similar in, in its logic and it's terrible, terrible logic. Um, So I think it's a tragedy. The other analogy, if you, uh, is the apartheid South Africa regime before it fell, which was again this sort of regime built on institutionalized, legally enshrined racial hierarchies. That is the nature of the Israeli state. So to be honest, it's not about this or that government. It's about the state project itself. Um, and that is why pretty much all of the mainstream, I mean, 90% of the Israeli political system it buys into this 
project of ethnic cleansing. I mean, there are some who would like to see a sort of slightly more peaceable coexistence, but they don't question the fundamental character of the state. Uh, and I think that's the problem. I, I personally think we, we need to say that, you know, if you build any state on the basis of prioritizing one religious or ethnic group over everybody else, you've got a problem from the word go. Um, and eventually people learned that in South Africa and, you know, apartheid was brought down and we now have an integrated population and sort of legal equality and so on between all the different races. It's not to say it's perfect, but, you know, it's it's a bit more normal and conventional in, in, uh, than the, the horrendous and obnoxious system that was apartheid. And I think that's where really things have to go with Israel. And my direct experience tells me that, that this idea of sort of policing people apart on an ethnic, on an ethnic basis in a land that actually they shared is is a dangerous uh, and it, it's actually a recipe for permanent conflict do you know what i mean because the t two groups always see themselves as at each other's throats so i think we need to overcome that and talk about equality where you know religion or race or or, or cultural background is not doesn't give you a privileged position um, and how would you even go about solving that because like it's been a problem for like what 70 years and like it's just no government ever has been able to solve it like is there Anyway, to solve it. I mean, nobody thought apartheid would ever be brought down, but it was. Um, and it, it, it was brought down by a huge popular resistance by the people of South Africa itself and by an international movement of solidarity, uh, which took a long time to develop. Do you know, it took 20, 30 years for that movement to develop. But eventually the world said, this is not acceptable. And apartheid South Africa was, was boycotted and isolated. And um, it became impossible for the regime to continue uh, because economically and politically and every other way it was isolated. Um, and I think that can happen. Uh, there's no doubt the, the, the resistance of the Palestinian people will continue because they, they've been so dispossessed. Do you know, they have no choice but to continue to struggle against this situation. And I also think it's linked into the wider politics of the Middle East because Israel was always part, in my opinion, of a kind of Western project to control the wider region. Uh, you know, Israel wouldn't really survive without the finance it gets and the military hardware it gets from the United States. And that's part of a wider architecture which involves the West supporting really horrendous regimes like the Saudi Arabian regime, some of the other Gulf state regimes, which are really, you know, vicious, brutal, undemocratic regimes. That's not sustainable in the long term. You know, the people of Saudi Arabia will eventually overthrow the Saudi regime, you know, and that will change things and that will have ramifications for Israel. The... We, we saw with the Arab Spring how the, the sort of dictators in in Egypt, Syria uh, and other places in the region were really seriously challenged. Now, they just about kind of crushed that rebellion, but that that wider regional rebellion will happen again. And that will challenge the entire kind of unjust structure that has been established in the Middle East. I'd like to get back to talking about what you did after you graduated. So after you graduated, you did a master's. Is, is that right? Yeah, in English in uh, literature. Um, so that was brilliant. I really enjoyed that. I had some great, great uh, lecturers in UCD. Um, a fellow called Declan Kybert, big hero of mine. I don't know if they, these names mean and to you or uh, your listeners or whatever, but um, yeah, I had some brilliant people. He, he wrote a brilliant book called Inventing Ireland, which was all about the kind of literary tradition and how Ireland kind of represented itself through literature. Um, so he was one of my lecturers, tutors, or whatever, for my master's. And I, yeah, there was loads of them. I won't go through them. Anyway, I, I really loved it. And, uh, but I took a kind of political slant on my 
MA, um, which was to challenge a, a kind of philosophy that was becoming popular in the colleges at the time called postmodernism, um, which was this kind of very trendy philosophy. It's still around, which essentially said that there's no truths anymore. Uh, there's everything is relative. It's all about what story you tell. There's no real truth we can tell about the world or about history. And uh, it presented itself as a radical philosophy, but I actually think it's a very disarming philosophy because it kind of really says, you know, yeah, you think this, I think that, but, you know, there is no truth. And, there's an, and ultimately, it's disarming politically. Do you know what I mean? Because it means, what's the point in trying to change anything? Because it's all just different stories being told by different people. Uh, and I, 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 that, that, has become, that sort of relativism has become quite popular in academic circles. Um, and I don't buy it at all. Uh, I think it's fundamentally undermining the challenge for a better world. You know, like to me, you know, poverty or inequality or the housing crisis, these are not relative problems. They're real problems. They're empirical, actual problems. And there's actual things that need to be done to change them. Sure, there's debate about how best to do that and so on. But there is a reality out there, uh, and it, it, it's important for us to understand it, and it's important for us to change it uh, when there's injustice and inequality present. And I, I think so. I, I tried to take on that philosophy, which was in, in my MA. That was really the thrust of it. I don't know whether I did it very well. It was, it was, you know, some of the philosophy was so obscure, frankly, <laughs> that you were reading in those days. But you know, that was the general thrust of what I was trying to do uh, to make the politics of change of radicalism of the left of marxism relevant again in a academic environment where there was a lot of people trying to say you know forget about big changes in the world it's all just a it's just a video game now you know that was the kind of thinking okay i kind of guess yeah and um, when you graduated then what kind of jobs were you working <sighs> when i graduated what was i doing i was tutoring for a while um and then i was teaching english for a while and as I said, I went to Spain. Uh, so I was teaching English in Spain and painting villas. I was painting villas for a while, which is a good job. The sun. Uh, um, and then I came back to Ireland. I was teaching English again for a while. And I was thinking about doing a PhD, but I'd become so involved in the politics at that stage. You know, that wasn't my intention. My intention was to kind of carry on something in the English literature kind of area. But I'd, I'd sort of because of Palestine and all that, I kind of slowly, incrementally got more and more involved in political stuff. Um, and I joined the Socialist Workers Movement, as they were called then. Uh, so slowly but surely, I kind of got dragged more and more into working with them. And you joined uh, the Socialist Workers Movement in college? I joined them in, yeah, in second year, but I kind of became progressively more involved with them, you know, as time went on. Yeah, and then... Um... Yeah, so you kind of got more and more involved. You're teaching English, tutoring, and then and then eventually you ran for them um, in the local elections in 2000, or is it in the 2002? Yeah. Now, to be honest, you're challenging my memory here, uh, Harry. But yes, I ran. Did I run for socialist worker? Yes, I did. I did, yeah. So we ran so, uh, socialist worker candidates. And yeah, we did that. I mean, it was okay for the first time out, but it was, you know, we were nowhere close to winning. Um, it was a fairly modest result. We'd only been kind of police. We'd only built a branch relatively recently in Dunleary, even though I was from Dunleary. At that time, social workers' movement were very small. They only had a few branches in the country, and mostly they were they were organised in Dublin City. So it was a kind of new venture to try and set up a branch in Dunleary. Um, 
But anyway, I ran because it was the area I was from. We did okay, but not good enough. But we were doing a lot of good work campaigning around issues. Um, like the seafront was a big thing, protecting the seafront from, from privatization, the Donegal Bats, anti-war movement. Since I'd come back from Palestine, been very involved in the anti-war movement. Then there was campaigns like bin charges and so on. So there were good campaigns. And there was a lot of people involved in those campaigns who wouldn't necessarily have seen themselves as socialists, but were kind of to the left. Do you know what I mean? And they're thinking. So we just, that really, it was in Dunleary, we just came up with the idea of let's try and build something that's not explicitly using the language of socialism, but it is left and it's based on grassroots campaigning. And that's where the idea of people before profit came from. And it was an experiment. I remember the first meeting was in Dunleary and we had Father Peter McVerry. We had some people from the Shell Sea campaign in Mayo who were fighting against the oil refinery. We had people from the Seafront campaign in Dunleary. Um, and a couple of other kind of campaigns we were involved in. And we just had a discussion like, should we try and build a, move, a wider political movement to give expression to these campaigns? And people thought, yeah, that's a good idea. And so that People Before Profit was born. Um, and then we set up a few other branches around Dublin first. Uh, and then we went out in the, ele- in the next election. And we didn't win again, but we did well. We did better. And people liked the idea of People Before Profit. So it started to develop from there. And... Um- you first ran in 2002, you weren't elected till 2009, but in pretty much every election, once you were elected up until 2016, you got more and more votes, you became very popular. And 2020, you got about the same. Um, I'm wondering, what were you doing from 2002 up until 2020 that made you just kind of slowly, slowly snowball and grow and grow and get more popular? I think it was always about the grassroots campaigning. Do you know, that's what we really were about. I mean, when I joined, got involved in politics, I joined precisely because I was inspired by movements like the Rock Against Racism stuff when I was, you know, a punk. The, the, see, the campaign against nuclear disarmament, the miners' strike, and then the Palestine, Palestinian movement, which was very much a kind of grassroots thing. So my politics were and remain fundamentally inspired by the idea of grassroots campaigning from the bottom. And the SWN really was not an electoral party when I joined it. Do you know what I mean? It was a campaigning organization. So that's what we did. And that's what I'd like to think we still do, even though we've now got a foothold in parliaments and councils that were different from other parties in that we really put an emphasis on grassroots mobilization as the key to bringing change. And that's what we did in those intervening years. So there was the bin charges campaign. There was the water charges campaign. There was the seafront campaign. There was anti-racist campaigning. There was shell to sea. Uh, there was all sorts of environmental campaigning. Whether they were little local, local things or whether they were big national things, it was how do we mobilize people do you know if you're going to bring change you need to mobilize people if you just wait for the next election it'll never happen do you know that was our kind of outlook still my outlook um so i think that's how our support grew uh was that kind of thing um and also yeah like housing was always a big issue in this area uh because house prices and rents were very high you know people think donnery everybody's rich but they aren't but rents and house prices are very high because they think everybody's rich in Dunleary. Uh, but actually, there's huge numbers of ordinary working people who are priced out of the market. So the housing crisis was in Dunleary long before it hit anywhere else. And we were on it from the word go. Because, you know, my contemporaries and everybody I knew was affected by it. You know, how, you, how can you afford the rents? How do you ever buy a house in this area unless you're really making a lot of money? Do you know? So that was something we were on and campaigning on from the word go. And I think we got a lot of residents for that as well. So I think it was, it was that 
constant, I'd like to think relentless campaigning on a grassroots level that people thought, yeah, these are serious. And it was the, we used to always stand, well, we still do on a regular basis up at the Ulster Bank in the centre of Dunleary on Saturday afternoon, handed out leaflets about this, that or the other issue. And I think people also just respected the fact that we were always there. Uh, we were always visible. We were always accessible. Uh, I think that's, people certainly in this area seem to think that was unusual, do you know? Their politicians weren't very accessible. They weren't very available. Whereas we were always out there. I think that helped as well. And um, you've always been this activist party. So would you ever have any interest in, or was your thought process behind, you know, ever entering into a government? But it's not my major priority, do you know? Like the, my major priority is to see the change. It's not to be in government for its own sake. And I think that's a big difference. Is is, is politics a career or is it a project for change? And I think... Uh, in conventional politics, it's seen as a career, do you know? It's like there's a political career and there's steps up the ladder to success in that career. I don't think that's the right way to look at politics. I mean, in some ways, I don't blame the people who see it that way because I think it's there's something wrong with the way we view politics and the way it's structured. The fact that it's limited to elections every four years, uh, it's a very kind of limited form of politics, in my opinion. And it, I think it kind of encourages careerism and individualism. Um, uh, so... You know, I think we've got to challenge that. But that's not my view. That's not why I got involved. It wasn't, to be, in fact, to be honest, it was the last thing in my mind uh, was being elected. It was always about campaigning. And you don't think um, you could, like, do... What do you think you could do more in power? What do you think about that? It depends. It depends on what, what, what the programme of the government is. If, it, if, it's, if there's an agreement to implement the sort of radical policies that will genuinely address the big problems people are facing, yes. But there would have to be agreement and an agreement to stick with those principles and those policies. Uh, too often what happens is that in negotiations around the formation of governments after elections, what they're really discussing is how can they escape from the promises they made in the election and come to an agreement which will allow them to go in together. And, you know, like some people may th think it's very negative when we say, listen, we'll never be part of a government of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. But the reason we say that is because there's a fundamental difference in their approach to kind of, you know, a society than, than our one. You know, they fundamentally believe in the market system. Uh, and that is incompatible with the sort of policies that we think are necessary to address the big problems people face in housing and health and education, in, in, you know, in climate change or in stopping wars, you know, like... We have a fundamental view, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, we have a conviction that you're not going to solve those problems unless you break from a system that's based on sort of ruthless, relentless competition for profit. We think most of the inequalities and problems and conflicts in the world flow from that fundamental fact of our system. So that's the episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, be sure to give me a rating and a follow on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it be Spotify or even like a hundred other ones but yeah that would really help me starting out if you have any recommendations or you'd like to follow along with this podcast and keep up to date with what's going on the podcast i'm on my personal youtube channel you can find me on pretty much any social media so instagram twitter facebook you name it it's um if you go into the show notes of this you'll find a link to my link tree and that has about 10 links to all my socials you'll find me at has media it's my name on everything Hasmedia or hasmedia.official. So yeah, I'm on TikTok even. So get on that. And yeah.